I'm Paul Vogelbang, and today's show is brought to you by Next Evo Naturals, clinically proven absorbing CBD and Harry's, created for a different shaving experience. As part of our Art of Living interview series, we have an excellent program about sex, drugs, and the pilot season for television and theater. Our guest today is longtime star maker, casting director, and author Joel Thurm. Joel Thurm is a Hollywood casting director, and he's written the new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Thank you so much for listening. We have got a great guest today who I will introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 707th episode when I spoke to Smithsonian Associate, former National Park Ranger and historian John Martini, and we talked about the infamous Alcatraz Island. Two weeks ago, I spoke to returning guest, biblical scholar, and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you missed those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. From his humble beginnings, growing up on his grandfather's dairy farm in Brooklyn, New York, Joel Thurm became one of the most admired, powerful, and accomplished casting directors in Hollywood early on. Joel Thurm's instincts proved beyond reproach when he recognized John Travolta as much more than a teen idol, casting him in the TV movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Joel Thurm tells us today about those stories and his key involvement in such iconic movies and shows as Grease, Airplane, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Cheers, Taxi, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Starsky and Hutch... Charlie's Angels, The Golden Girls, Knight Rider, The Cosby Show, Hill Street Blues, and so many, many more. Joel Thurm's new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, is the ultimate backstage pass. Introduction. <laughs> I didn't set out to become a casting director, but even at seven, when my mother took me to see Samson and Delilah, the 1949 Cecil B. DeMille's biblical movie epic, I had strong opinions about who should be playing whom. As a second grader at the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn, I spent much of my time reading violent Old Testament stories. Samson's real name is Shimshon, I whispered to my mother, and Delilah should have been pronounced the Lee Law. Annoyed audience glances came our way. My mother giggled and shushed me. I did, however, approve of the casting of hunky, bare-chested Victor Mature as Samson, the first adult man I had ever seen who was completely hairless from the neck down, at least to his waist, that is, and the exotically gorgeous Hetty Lamar as Delilah. I paid special attention to the aristocratic, yet snarky and menacing Brit, George Sanders, who played the almighty Saren of Gaza. Later on, I saw him in all sorts of other films, Ivanhoe, All About Eve, Call Me Madam. I learned he could go from costume to costume and role to role while somehow remaining the same. From then on, I saw every film that came to the neighborhood movie house. Victor Mature seemed so well-suited to playing a half-naked gladiator or a slave in films set in ancient Rome or Egypt that I couldn't accept him in street clothes. But I quickly learned that the force of some actors' personalities transcended any part they might play. 
The last star build in the Ivanhoe trailer was announced unforgettably, and Elizabeth Taylor as Rebecca the Jewess. Whatever I saw her do for the rest of her career, she was always Elizabeth Taylor. Then, were the, the, then there were the supporting players who were the first call choices if you needed a certain type. That smart, funny sidekick or best friend, Thelma Ritter or Eve Arden. The cartoon-like rich guys, Charles Coburn and Lucille Ball's banker, Gail Gordon. We were the last family on the block to get a TV set. But once we did, I stayed glued to it in it whenever I wasn't in school or at the movies. Watching that small flickering black and white box which reduced everyone to living room size, I learned more about the magic that can happen when the right performer gets the right part. Out of those thousands of hours of viewing, eventually became my career as a casting director. Working at CBS in the mid-1970s, I cast the Bob Newhart show, which TV Guide would one day rank among the greatest series of any time. I'm not sure I agree with that, but hey, I didn't argue. As head of talent at Spelling Goldberg Productions, Goldberg, a hugely successful TV production company. I cast Charlie, uh, excuse me, I cast Starsky and Hutch, The Rookies, Family, and a few episodes of Charlie's Angels, and the pilots for Fantasy Island and The Love Boat, all of which, in one way or another, define the 70s and have earned cult followings that last to this day. While at Spelling Goldberg, I produced The Boy. Uh, in the Plastic Bubble, a TV movie that starred John Travolta, whom I had known since he was 17. He had just debuted as Vinny Barbarino in the hit high school sitcom Welcome Back, Hotter, but had yet to make Grease or Saturday Night Fever the themes that would bring him superstardom. Next, Paramount TV uh, hired me as vice president of the television, a TV talent and casting. One of my projects there was Taxi, which won 18 Emmy Awards over five seasons and launched six great careers. Those of Judd Hirsch, Danny DeVito, Mary Lou Henner, Tony Danza, Christopher Lloyd, and Andy Kaufman. Paramount gave me the job of casting Grease and Airplane, two movies destined to outlive us all. The same is true of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, whose screen and initial U.S. stage versions I also cast. Its fabled midnight screenings are still a rite of passage. In 1980, I landed in NBC, where I became vice president of talent and casting for a decade. Today, I look at the list of some of our hit shows in those years. Cheers, Miami Vice, The Golden Girls, Seinfeld, L.A. Law, <coughs> Chips, The Cosby Show, Different World, Facts of Life, Hill Street, Blues, <sighs> Different Strokes, Family Ties, Remington Steel, Night Court, Matlock, Night Rider, The Eighteen, etc., and I know my work helped define the ethos of a generation. And that, of course, is our guest today, author and casting director Joel Thurm, reading from his new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, Joel Thurm. Joel Thurm, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I got to tell you, this book, your new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director, just grabbed me from the title and just kept me right in it. I have really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. I want to start, though, because you have you have this amazing talent, and we're so appreciative of your time and the book and your reading, your generously reading to us today. But I want to go back and talk about your, your not very Hollywood 
upbringing because you certainly were okay, enmeshed in sure. Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Because you grew up on a milk farm, a milk farm of all places. And so, yeah, maybe, a dairy farm in Brooklyn yeah, of all yeah, places. Of all places. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you learn? I mean, tell us maybe about your parents and your grandparents. What, what I, yeah. Well, what I learned about growing up on my grandfather's farm was I never wanted to be near another place like that again. <laughs> there were, you know, I think between 50 and 60 smelly, bony, not not fat-looking cows like you see on television for California's milk industry. And, um, you know, I even tasted milk once right out of the udder, and, oh, it was disgusting. <laughs> so uh, I was also kind of like my grandmother, my, my grandfather's uh, mother, who also, uh, she detested the farm too, but she, she was stuck there with my grandfather. Um but 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 it gave that farm gave me street cred, however, because while I wasn't a, a great athlete at any sport that kids would play at that time, stickball, baseball, anything involving a hand and eye and a ball, I don't do well. But the street cred of having a grandparent with a farm in the neighborhood that I could take the kids to mm. gave me great street cred, which mm. I've now used that word three times. <laughs> and so I always felt that was something special. And the only kid that could relate to the books, the, the, the readers, the primer or primer, I don't know how you pronounce it, of Dick and Jane visiting Grandpa on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that was a fascinating part of the book, too, because I, I really enjoyed hearing about your family. And you've read a little bit about your mom going to um, productions and her influence in your life. How did... How did that love of, you know, theater and and all things entertainment lead you into the industry? Because that that's a that's a good, you know, that's a good path to take. Well, my mother was was always interested in movies and movie stars, so that was something she talked about or we talked about. Um, also, uh, when I was I don't know about seven or eight years old, maybe <coughs> a little older. My uh, brother got very sick, and so my mother could not go with my father to see a Broadway musical, Guys and Dolls. Now, little did I know years later, I would actually work with the people who created Guys and Dolls, mm. namely Abe Burroughs, and also his son, Jimmy Burroughs, who is uh, arguably the most important uh, half-hour comedy director. But uh, there I was, sitting with my father in the very last row of the balcony, <laughs> and the cheapest seats in the house, and I remembered just from that one view, viewing or listening or whatever, almost all the words to the song, A Bushel and a Peck. Mm. And probably because that's where the chorus girls stripped down to pasties and crotchies of big daisies. And <laughs> you can see that from the last row of the balcony. <laughs> but also, um, a little later on, I, I found out that you could rent uh, or go to the library and you could listen to Broadway um, musicals. They had all the albums. Mm. So between that and listening to uh, a radio station that played show music from three to four every day, uh, I got I got hooked on on show business. <laughs> uh, I knew I didn't want to do anything remotely like my parents were doing. So my object was to get out of Brooklyn, get away from everything, and have a whole different life, which I succeeded to do, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, in a in a huge way. Again, the book is Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season: Confessions of a Casting Director. Joel Thurman's our guest, and as a casting director and a, a 
a, a, a person really kind of in the middle, but not directly in the you know in the in the light, maybe on stage perhaps. But you you had to you know I learned this from the book because I really didn't understand the the role the the real, the complete role of a casting director. You really were navigating these very um, challenging power dynamics with everybody else that was you know right alongside you with the producers the directors the agents the actors how did you get them to go along with all of the decisions that you needed them to make you know kind of as you say in well the, well well first of all you you learn who's the who's the 800 pound gorilla who mm-hmm. has the most weight mm-hmm. in a room so generally uh, in almost any business the person who's paying for it has the most to say uh, and that would be like in, in Hollywood, if it's a movie, the, the studio or in television, the network, because ultimately the network's paying for everything. So uh, they have the biggest voice table, unless there's a superstar writer or director in which uh, it, whose project it is. In that case, the power dynamic shifts to them. So, uh, but, you know, you learn who who's this and you... Uh, sometimes you agree with the people who have the power and sometimes you don't. And if you don't, you try to bring in other actors or actresses that they might like uh, instead of who they thought they wanted. Hmm. But it's, 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 I used to call it, uh, my job is like a Japanese tea ceremony. <laughs> I sort of had to bring everybody together without them knowing that that's what I was doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you learn how to do that. I think that's why, Originally, there were a lot of women casting directors because women could more easily manip- manipulate men than men could manipulate <laughs> other men. And there were almost always men making the decision. One of the stories in the book that really um, I just enjoyed, and I know my audience will too, is uh, all of the work that you did with Golden Girls and B. Arthur and, and that entire cast, oh. the, the cast of that show was just amazing for all ages, you know, for for time okay, immemorial. Yeah. So tell us that story about, well, about the Gold Girls. Well, 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 why, well, first of all, why, why, the, the phrase that you're looking for is a TV phrase called bimodal, hmm. which means it appeals to young and old. Okay. So essentially, everybody liked the Golden Girls yeah, once yeah. it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody. And, then, and, and then it's the I Love Lucy of the 80s, uh-huh. basically, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's always on television, just like Lucy used to be, the black and white Lucys. Yes. <laughs> so... The, the, the thing where I was involved was my boss, Brandon Tartikoff, head of NBC, did not want B. Arthur. And it, it was my job to find someone who could do that part just as good as B. Arthur could. And I knew that she would be very good in the park. I disagreed with my boss. But, hey, uh, there was one woman whose name is Elaine Stritch, who is mostly known for her Broadway work until she eventually played Alec Baldwin's mother on 30 Rock. Which is hilarious. And she was as, and also for the Broadway show Company, Mm. where she got famous for singing the song Ladies Who Lunch. Mm. Uh, So, um, but she really wanted to do the Golden Girls because she'd never had a TV salary. Mm. I mean, you work your ass off on stage and you get maybe 10% of what what a TV series would cost. So, anyway, I flew her out, but, um, I'm, I'm going to skip to it. It was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> the, the woman who wrote Golden Girls did, was not interested in hearing any other name except B. Arthur. So, I mean, if I had brought in, I don't know, uh, Athena to read, the, the Greek <laughs> goddess, she wouldn't have gotten the part. But I didn't know this. I, I, I wish I had known that. I wouldn't have 
bothered everybody. <laughs> but eventually, Brandon, my boss, Brandon Tardigoff, relented when it was pointed out to him, A, that uh, Susan Harris wasn't going to change her mind, number one. That's the 800-pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. But the other thing was, this wasn't to be Arthur's show. She was one quarter of the show, or at that time, we thought one third. We didn't know that, uh, what's her name, with the the, uh, the mother, uh, her name just went out of my head, was going to be as popular as she was. She was not supposed to be a series regular, but obviously she was made one very quickly. So it wasn't the B. Arthur show. It was all of them. Mm. And another person who contributed to it was reversing the roles of Rue McClanahan and Betty White. Mm. Originally, they were supposed to be the other each other's character. And Jay Sandrich, wonderful director, pointed out that that would mean that Betty was doing the same thing she did on the Mary Tyler Moore show as the oversexed whatever. (laughs) And uh, this was a much smarter move. Hey, it's Paul. We'll be right back with our guest, author Joel Thurm. You know, healthcare subjects are all important to us here in the Not All Better Show. We talk about it a lot, but when something important in a world of sleep or stress information occurs, we need to know. And most times we discuss it here too. I do a ton of research in this area of healthcare, sleep, stress, because I want to give you the very latest to help you make decisions and be in the know on these subjects too. Doing your research, and I know you guys all do, before you buy means making better informed choices, especially when it comes to stress or sleep-related products like CBD. A study by an independent lab confirmed some brands contain up to 60% less CBD than they claim on the label. But with our sponsor today, Next Evo Naturals, you can trust that you're getting the very best of the best. As the most clinically studied CBD brand on the market, Next Evo Naturals takes research to the next level. Both Gretchen and I have been taking the Next Evo Sleep Support CBD Complex Gummies with melatonin, and the gentle sleep we get with Next Evo has been amazing. Not groggy in the morning, but we've both slept well, and we wake up feeling refreshed. Gretchen has a tough time falling asleep, and the gummies do the job. For me, too. It's time now for you to upgrade to a CBD brand that takes quality sleep as seriously as you take your overall health. Next Evo tests their product multiple times for clinical trials to ensure you get 100% of what's on the label. No other CBD brand even comes close. Only Next Evo uses Smart Sorb CBD, proven to have 30 times better absorption in the first 30 minutes and four times the overall absorption of other products. Smart Sorb CBD to calm your mind, fast-acting melatonin to get you to sleep fast, and controlled-released melatonin so you can sleep longer and wake up refreshed. Next Evo covers a variety of CBD needs, from stress relief to better sleep, offering you a boost to your daily wellness. Upgrade your CBD. Go to nextevo.com slash NOB to get 20% off your first order of $40 or more. That's 20% off $40 or more at nextevo.com slash NOB. All of this will be in our show notes today, but thanks everybody. Check out nextevo.com. We're with Joel Thurm. Joel Thurm has written the wonderful book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. You really, throughout the book, you make a real point of um, 
sharing that that you've always advocated for minority actors and another groundbreaking show in in addition to Golden Girls was Gimme a Break which starred Nell Carter. Chapter 14 in your book is devoted to this wonderful actor, Tony Award, Emmy Award winner. And the and the title is Nell the title of that chapter is Nell Carter a most unusual friendship. Nell was brilliant and sad and you two just clicked and she was a very important person. The chapter yeah. is wonderful. It's very touching. And so I, w- I wonder if you'd tell us about what was it about Nell Carter? Well, that, that, chapter, so much- that, chapter is, is a mo- that chapter is a movie all by itself. Yeah. What, yeah. what made Nell unique in my life was uh, in 1980, when I just got to NBC, she was the first actor I made a series deal with, which means we paid her X amount of dollars to uh, keep guarantee her that, you know, uh, she would get that money, but she couldn't do another series for another network. So we locked her in for a series because I had never met her, but I had seen a misbehaving and I'd seen her on talk shows. And to me, this was a no brainer. <laughs> so, uh, so we did that. That was the first, and because she was the first talent deal I made, um, I got to know her on a, on a personal level. And like I said, it was very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a relationship that probably shouldn't have happened. I should have kept my distance a little bit because I got so involved that, you know, eventually I became God, you know, godfather to her two adopted sons mm-hmm. and, and also with her, with her drug problem. And, you know, believe me, I, as you, as you see, the, uh, the second word in the title of my book is the word drugs, sex, mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. And I, I always did recreational drugs. I've never tried to hide that, but I, I never, uh, I never did them while I worked. Uh, and you know, there was, you know, every, when I, when I drive out of the studio, I'd light up a joint on my way home and in my Mustang convertible, I might as well be a complete, uh, cliche on my way to my house in Laurel Canyon. <laughs> so I was a complete California 1970s cliche. But uh, in the 80s, what, what happened with Nelson, I make this talent deal. And I get a call from New York. Uh, it's now pilot season. And all. And this was after, well, I'm now going to talk about a pilots that were done before I arrived at NBC. And my boss, Brandon Tartikoff, calls and says, what do we do? He said, one pilot was worse than the other. We have nothing. Do we have anybody on the contract who could, you know, who be the center of a half an hour? And it's like, Brandon, I've been sounding, you know, when we sound like a broken record, I've been saying Nell Carter, Nell Carter, Nell Carter for the last week. And he said, yeah, great. What could she play? And this is where my unconscious bias came out. And I say, sort of semi-sarcastic. Well, she could always be a maid. Why didn't I say she could always be an entertainer with problems of keeping family and career together? Because, as it was pointed out by a very, very close black friend years later, I was culturally biased. Not biased itself, or not prejudiced, but that would be the thing I thought. That would be the thing I thought of first. Anyway, when I said that, Brandon said, yeah, a black hazel. Okay. For those of you who don't know, hazel was a, a 1960s series about a white housekeeper. And then Brandon said, well, who would she work for? And I said, well, an authority figure, like a cop or a fireman. Uh, do you have anybody in mind? He said, well, I didn't, but this image just popped into my head. I said, yeah, he's a guy I cast on Broadway for something. His name is Dolph Sweet, and he's in his 50s. 
He looks like the toughest redneck at all, but he's actually very, very sweet. And he could, you know, do both of those things. Well, so that's how Give Me a Break happened. I literally, in an offhand remark, she could always be a maid, and I give him the two leads. <laughs> did, I get, did I get any extra money for this? No. <laughs> but you definitely... But, but whenever, there was a, whenever there was a problem on the show involving Nell, I was the Nell whisperer. So I had to deal with all of that. I should have made the money from the show. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> yeah, but you made a great friend, and you certainly brought an entertainer to the fore that it was just one of those generational talents. And, and I, I love your reference to your Mustang because there's a great picture of you in the book sitting on the back of your Mustang there in Laurel Canyon. And the rest of the pictures are so amazing in the book too. I just, I loved them. In particular, I really thought the autograph message from Pearl Bailey got this big head, beautiful headshot of Pearl Bailey. And she well, just she tells you, <laughs> she gets a whole page. Yeah, I just no, this right. beautiful picture, <laughs> and and you say in the book that my entire career in L.A. is really owed to Pearl Bailey, and I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that friendship because she's a unique personality, well, one that was well, well, truly we, special. We met while I was working for David Merrick, who at that time in the mid to late sixties uh, was the most important theatrical producer on Broadway. And uh, Nell, uh, not Nell, uh, I'm getting my, my black divas confused for a second. Um, Pearl Bailey was the fifth uh, star dolly on Broadway. Hmm. And that's when I went to work for David Merrick's office in a business capacity at that time. And later on, I became David Merrick's casting director. But in the beginning, I was... Uh, assistant to the general manager that was just business and contracts and negotiations. And at night I was company manager of hello Dolly, which meant, you know, making sure the box office stuff was correct. Uh, you know, dealing with all the little squabbles backstage. Um, basically I would be the one to go to for any, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first line of any problems with the, for the front office. And that's when I met Pearl and, we, and part of my job was actually to keep her happy because she was in L.A. Uh, all alone. Her family was all in California. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of a difficult thing to be without your family for that long a time. Mm. Anyway, she and I clicked, and I just loved being with her. I can't tell you why we clicked. We just did. She became like an, a second mother to me. Mm-hmm. And she adopted me, you know, and believe me, that's not the only signed picture from Mama Pearl. Mm-hmm, I mean, I got mm-hmm. tons of them. Uh, sometimes I think she gave them out a little too frequently, but in this case, it was real. And uh, one day she said, uh, don't tell anybody, but I've been offered a TV show in California. Do you want to come and work on it? And like the rest of my life, I said, well, yeah, why not? I, I knew where I would live. I had been visited California before. My best friend had this house in Laurel Canyon. I knew that I could have the whole bottom half of this house. So all I needed to do was bring clothes and buy a car. So I, I said, yes, why not? So I gave up the most, I gave up in a sensational apartment in New York. Well, I, I didn't give that up. I just subletted it for the time. But also gave up uh, arguably one of the best casting jobs in New York to take the leap and move to California. Hmm. So, uh, and Pearl Bailey's show was dead on arrival. If I had done research, I would have realized that. 
because it was an old-fashioned variety show, you know, with a host who sang or danced and guest stars, and they came out and did something together. And uh, Laffin had already uh, appeared on television and was changing the way variety shows from then on were done. <laughs> so the show... I don't know how many weeks it lasted, but it certainly lasted less than the 15 it was promised. And there I was in California. And also something had happened during that time. While I was living with my friend, Mark, you know, after a couple of months, you know, you really think, oh, I should move someplace else. And we had a local uh, real estate guy. And I said to him, Derek, well, how do I, where do I start looking for an apartment? And he said, well, why are you looking for an apartment? Why don't you just buy that house on the corner? It's, it's been for sale for a couple of years. I never even noticed it. <laughs> but I said, well, you know, I didn't, think, I didn't think about buying houses at that time. I was, what, 28 years old? Or no, I would have been younger than that. But whatever it was, houses were for married people with kids. At least that's what they were back east. And Derek explained to me it didn't work that way in California. In California, people, single people, bought and sold houses all the time. And believe me, if I, when I tell you the, the price I paid for the house, you're going to hang up on me. $21,500. $21, oh, my gosh, John. Oh, uh, in in what was to become later one of the priciest neighborhoods. Anyway, the point is I went ahead and bought it. So I really couldn't go back home because I also started fixing it up. I didn't just move in and move my clothes. I started fixing it up and how do you sell a house that's half torn apart <laughs> you know, with the kit instructions to put it back together? <laughs> so that's why I stayed in California, and that's why Pearl is responsible for everything that happened afterwards. Hi, it's Paul. I mentioned our sponsor today, Harry's, who's created a different shaving experience. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been overcharged for razors. My gosh, I have. You know, I wonder if you just even recognize how much you spend on razors in a single month. Did you ever feel sticker shock just looking at the prices of refill razor blades? Oh, my gosh. Why is it that razors cost so much? Well, Harry's razors are incredibly sharp and made in their own Harry's factory in Germany. Most importantly, they cost as little as two bucks Per blade, you can get a quality razor you can depend on delivered straight to your door from Harry's. Harry sent me a trial set of blades. I received it. I opened it. I got some of the Harry's liquid soap. I got some of the bar soap. I got some of the great Harry's razors and blades. And everything was perfect. The packaging was great. The razor is substantial. When you you have it in your hands, it just feels like something that you want to use. Plus, it just kept my facial hair exactly the way I want it with a high-quality shave. There's no excuse not to try Harry's. Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, and they're still offering a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. So don't get overcharged for razors. Get Harry's. Get a $15 Truman Shave Trial Set for just $3 at harrys.com slash N-O-B. That's harrys.com slash N-O-B for a $3 trial set. Check it out. Please support our sponsors. All of this will be in our show notes today. Thanks, everybody. Our guest, of course, is Joel Thurm. He's written the new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season. 
Confessions of a Casting Director of the Book. Joel is getting rave reviews. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for sharing it with me. But Ted Danson has said wonderful things. Oh, you're more than welcome. Danny DeVito (laughs) has said wonderful things. And John Travolta said, and I, I love this quote. John Travolta said of the book, a true talent, he said this of you, of, of you, Joel Durham, he said, a true talent at the top of the biz, we are all lucky to know him, and a great guy. It's fun, and I love it, John Travolta said that. You you really were, you, you mentioned that you, you knew John Travolta since he was 17 in the Welcome Back Cotter years. You spotted something in an early John Travolta that gave you a sense as to his star quality. What what was it about John Travolta that you just well, recognized? Hey, I I wasn't unique and spotted this. Come on. I mean, like I said, <laughs> well, from the minute he the moved story. to New York, from the minute he moved to New York at age 17, he had already graduated high school. He started working instantly. So it, it wasn't in theater. So it, it wasn't like I was the only one who recognized this. But come on. I mean, I get asked that question. How do you know someone is mm-hmm, special? Mm-hmm. How do you reckon? Mm-hmm. And I can't answer it in any def- in any definitive way. It's not something you can go in and weigh on a scale. You can't fill a quart bottle with something and have a liquid measure. This is, I think, why it became a good casting director, because I there was something about him that that was special. And I mean, come on. He was tall. He was incredible incredibly handsome. He had that cute little chin dimple. His smile was arresting. His eyes were incredible. I mean, it, it, you know, Helen Keller would have discovered him if she had been alive at that point. <laughs> For those of you who don't know who Helen Keller is, look it up. <laughs> yeah, look it up. We'll, we'll put a link. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure my audience will recognize that one. But you did recognize that because you say you, you, you always found the right performer and the right performer gets the right part. And that's one of the things that you do oh, say. Oh, no, the, no. the right performer doesn't always get the right part, but that's what you try for. Yeah. But with, with him, it wasn't, he, I just met him. His, his manager was a very, very good friend of mine and his manager only had terrific clients. So I never had to lie. I mean, they were included Jeff Conaway, Patrick Swayze, uh, Catherine Helmond, uh, what's her name? Her name just went out of my head. Uh, Holland Taylor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, they were, every client was outstanding. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I knew that Bob would never have a bad actor. So, yeah. But, but again, Travolta quickly got snapped up by doing Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah. Yeah, which is a great series, great TV series. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but he got stopped up anyway. Oh, gosh. I loved <laughs> I those guys. Just, Gabe well, Kaplan. You're, in, you're entitled. I yeah, thought Gabe okay. was boring. <laughs> but I thought, I thought some of the kids were great. Yeah, yeah. The Sweat Hogs and uh, yeah. Arnold. Yeah, well... He, Again, the book is fantastic, and you are just getting some great reviews for it. You're really Thanks. an amazing storyteller, of course. You're very honest to it, and that's that's so refreshing and welcome, and, and it's just a pleasure to speak with you. You talk Thank about you. your successes and failures. What what do you feel was your biggest regret or, or failure in, in, throughout this casting kind of world that you, well, you lived in? Well, the, the, my, I think my biggest failure, it's a little sideways from your question, um, was that I didn't want to be limited by casting uh, because early, not a medium in my casting career, I cast one of the best, not cast, produced Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was right after, John, it was John during John Travolta's hiatus from Welcome Back, Cotter, after the first season. So I knew that I had more in me, but I never, I never, I never took the step until much, much later to try to be an independent producer. 
So my regret is not not pursuing that as much as I did casting. Mm-hmm. Because casting was easy for me. Uh, but I... <clears throat> You know, I, I was and and to be it's to be a casting director, likening it, likening it to the department store business. You're a buyer, mm. <laughs> not a seller. Mm. Sellers make more money, and those people are in my business are called agents. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. if I'd had to do it all over again, I think I would have gone to that career. Mm. Uh, but but you know, coulda woulda shoulda. I had a great time doing what I was doing anyway. Yeah. So the the subtitle is "Confessions of a Casting Director." What what does my audience need to know about the pilot season in terms of casting that makes it unique? Well, well, pilot season now I think is pretty much gone. Uh, um, but pilot season used to happen every every. I guess it was it would start in the early spring because all during the previous time NBC would be hiring writers to write pilots and they all began to be delivered at around that time. Mm. And, uh, especially the hour long shows, which took longer to make and to, you know, to edit and do all that stuff. But at pilot season, you were going crazy because sometimes, uh, I remember one day there were, there were three sets of final auditions for three different pilots. I mean, these, you can't rush, you, you know, they have <laughs> to, they take their own time. I mean, these are people's lives and, you know, uh, change, uh, you know, by someone's whim in that office. So, uh, it was a very tense season. It was like, and you went through this day after day after day for about a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just very intense. And there was something about me and I don't know what it is, but I work well under extreme pressure. So uh, I can tell you the family tie story if you want to hear that. Oh, I'd love it. Yeah, definitely. We love family tie. Well, fa- family tie is one of the big hit shows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the casting director is a wonderful woman by the name of Judith Weiner, who also, by the way, was the casting director for the Golden Girls. Okay. Uh, yeah, because the Golden Girls started out, uh, we weren't looking for stars. We were looking for just regular actresses. But it turned out that it only worked with star personalities. But I, that was an aside. So Judith Weiner, first of all, she uh, the first choice was Matthew Broderick, and he passed to take the Broadway show. And then Zach Galligan was our second, and he took the movie of uh, Gremlins instead. And then she brought in this Canadian kid, with no name, just people, this guy she'd found in readings. And I thought he was terrific and funny. And so did everybody else except my boss, Brandon Tartikoff. <laughs> <laughs> another, another Brandon Tartikoff moment. <laughs> well, you know, but hey, you he's know, the boss. He was, yeah, he was the boss. Yeah. But, uh, and he said he's not cute. His name is his face will never be on a lunchbox. A famous <laughs> line. And of course, when Michael got the part, he made a lunchbox made with his face <laughs> on and gave it to Brandon. <laughs> but the, the producer and the writer Gary Goldberg was a really smart guy, and he came in with everybody he wanted for the show, final readings in my office. So once we dispensed with the kids, and we pretty much had agreed we would go with this unknown Canadian kid, came the parents. Mm. And he came in wanting Donna McKechnie from Chorus Line as the mother, and an actor you probably don't know named Michael Gross. <laughs> well, you do know Michael. No, he didn't come in with, I mean, he didn't come in with Michael Gross. He came in with Chris Sarandon, Christopher uh. Sarandon, who's a wonderful actor, but... He's never had a TV career because no one seems to think he's likable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and, and Adonna was not an actress and she read terribly. 
So then something in my, this is under the pressure in the room. I said, you know, there's this guy I met in New York last time. If you close your eyes and hear him speak, he sounds like Alan Alda hmm. and his name is Michael Gross. <laughs> so they looked him up in New York and liked him and went with him. Hmm. You know, it was big. Why do I have the crazy memory that he sounded like, uh, like what's his name? But you know what? I, as I was, as you were telling that story, I just closed my eyes and thought, yeah, there is a real similarity between the two. Yeah. yeah. And when, when it came to Meredith, uh, mm-hmm, I'd known Meredith mm-hmm. back. I've been casting her since I started working as when she was an ingenue. She was, uh, for for those people who are not of the Hebrew tribe, uh, I'm going to use a word called shiksa, which means a non-Jewish woman, mm-hmm. usually a blonde. Mm-hmm. So my boss, Fred Silverman, was always had the shiksa syndrome. And every year there was a new beautiful blonde woman that he, <laughs> what do you call it, wanted in our shows. Mm-hmm. Nothing nefarious, by the way, mm-hmm. just, you know. So that year it was Meredith Baxter. <laughs> so, but but she she'd been it for many years. Anyway, the point is, I said, you know, th- th- this is not a new idea, but it'd be a new idea to her playing mothers. What about Meredith Baxter? And they met her and read her, and that changed her life. And that was that. That's how that show happened. Hmm. But you know, my mind works under pressure more than if I have all the time in the world to yeah. think about something. Fascinating. Joel Thurm, so good to talk to you. I just really have one final question now. You know, from a kind of a perspective standpoint, I think our, our audience will love this. You, you you say that young Hollywood is so different now. So maybe how's the casting process changed over the years with all of the technology and social media? Will we will we have some of these same kinds of great stories to, to look forward to in the future? Well, or is I, it all I think more? You will, but- there were two things that complicate my answering mm-hmm. that. One was COVID, mm-hmm. when in-person meetings stopped. You know, in other words, John Travolta would have not come to my office in nineteen in two thousand twenty-two because of COVID. Yeah. So in-person meetings stopped, and instead you would see tapes of people. Now, when you see a tape of someone, you can't say to them, you can't throw out something provocative to see their reaction which is what I used to do in my room all the time. And not terrible things, but just something to get the other person talking mm-hmm. and to see where, how their mind works. That was, that, that was, you know, that's, that's how I evaluated actors. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you could, you couldn't have someone read in your office. I mean, this is during COVID and you could, you, you couldn't correct them. Now zoom came in and changed some of that, but you, I'm sure you've done zoom and you know that it's never as good as in person, yeah, but no. it's a, it's an adequate substitute. Mm-hmm. So I think now with the technology at everybody's fingertips, it broadens, it makes it in this one way easier because now people can put themselves on tape who would never have been allowed in, in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, before, in, at least in, in Hollywood, uh, everything was done through agents. And if you didn't have an agent, you were just up the Creek, you know, you really couldn't, couldn't get away in. But now this allows anybody to get away in, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think that's one thing that's definitely changed um, out here, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a big difference. Well, the book, again, is fantastic. Joel Thurm's been our guest. It's titled Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season Confessions of a Casting Director. So much more we could talk about, Joel Thurm. I, I, I could talk to you for a long time about this, but I want to encourage our audience to go out and buy the book. 
Check out the well, pictures. Well, let, me, let me interrupt you. I have to say one thing because your audience might think I'm infallible. But <laughs> nah. I'm also the one. But I'm also the one who said I didn't care for Tom Cruise and turned him down <laughs> for a pilot, and that I really wasn't sure about uh, Don Johnson from Miami Vice. Yeah. So you see, I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have enjoyed a really wonderful, almost perfect conversation with you, and. Uh, Gosh, great work. Congratulations on the book. My best to you. And please Thank you very much. Come back and talk to us again as you as you feel like you got more stories to share with us with oh, us cuz Come on, you, you know I have more stories. Oh, so you man. Me back and I'll show up. Yeah. Well, that would be great, Joel. <laughs> right. okay. Thank you, sir. Right. Best to you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. My thanks to our sponsors, Nextevo Naturals, clinically proven absorbing CBD and Harry's, created for a different shaving experience, please check out our sponsors who are so helpful in sponsoring the show. My thanks to Joel Thurm for his generous time today. Remember, check out Joel Thurm's new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director, and check it out today. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old, Better Show. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.